0: Well, ms Tuesday, Ryan Hart. We just had the enormous pleasure of hosting Pascal on our podcast and pascal is the chief of staff at the international red cross Fifteen thousand people working for him he's dealing with like top-down pressures he's dealing with bottom-up pressures he's navigating the political geopolitical landscapes of the world he's supporting grassroots interventions (laughs) within countries all over the world that are post-conflict during conflict post-natural disaster i mean and yet somehow he remains calm throughout the whole interview and both of us were like oh my goodness we want to send that to every single senior leader we're working Working with or might end up working with or have worked with. I felt that was a remarkable, remarkable opportunity and window into a senior leader's life, but also a senior leader who's gone through really significant transformation in their own life and their own style.
1: Yeah, I think that that's right he's just delightful and i'm just i'm just laughing because of course who else would just drop an anecdote about hostage negotiation and yeah. uh, as as you're just kind of talking about their work <laughs> it's like oh yeah, yeah. that's right it yeah. just kind of reminds you right that you know there's so much happening in the world and people are navigating so much and they're doing it with strategy and with humility and with vulnerability and with incredible competence Right. It's like, I just feel like after talking with him, I'm like, okay, you know, I have these moments where I'm like, it's going to be all right. Yeah. And after talking with Pascal, it's like one of those moments, like, it's not going to be easy. We got a lot ahead of us, but it's, you know, he is the sense of like, there's so many good human beings working for so much good in the world. Yeah. It leaves me lightened, it leaves me inspired, and it uh, leaves me more committed, which, you know, like, what else can you ask from a senior leader?
0: Right and uh, and he does we, we go everywhere from like how to work with senior leaders bottom up how senior leaders need to be approached top down how leaders navigate the inevitable maelstrom of pressures that are coming towards them to him talking about his own kind of like personal leadership transformations and the things that enable him to make good decisions and prioritize in the midst of so many pressures so and he's just a lovely warm genuine human folks so i hope you really enjoy this pod we are coming off it having really enjoyed interviewing and talking with pascal again
1: That's right. Enjoy.
0: Take care, friends.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. We are here with one of our old friends, Pascal Porche. And you all may not have heard us talk about Pascal directly, but you have heard us talk about the work we were in with him a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited to have Pascal with us today because he was with us in a project that was foundational to really establishing the outside. I feel like you went, you were with us Pascal in these moments that were just changed everything all the way from, you know, walking in to, I I remember walking into a room and like, just looking at you going like, okay, it's going to be okay. Pascal's here. It's all right. Like, it's going to be okay. (laughs) You know, all the way, you know, to dinner out with your wife in Geneva, I just feel like there, we have had some times together. And so so pleased to have you here as one of the senior leaders we worked with on the ICRC project. And so maybe that's a little bit where we'll start. I'll just, cause you know, Tim and I will have plenty to say.
0: Can I just add one thing about Pascal before we dive in with the first question? Absolutely. I think Pascal is probably one of the snappiest dressers we've ever worked <gasps> that's, right. <laughs> that's right. Don't you think? Don't you think? So Pascal not only has our interactions with you influenced, you know, the evolution of the outside, but has actually influenced my fashion style. Yeah, yeah. I would just want to, I just want to name that, like you know, Tuesday, and I would get, and I'd be like, Tuesday, did you see that jacket Pascal was wearing today? I've got where does he, where does he buy that stuff? Where then I, I go and ask Pascal, you know, what's the shopping? And Pascal actually sent me to shops in Geneva so I could go buy some decent kit, you know. So um, I just want to say, you know, just for because this is an audio podcast. People obviously can't see Pascal, but like Pascal is like a snappy dresser, my friends. Like he dresses. And I don't mean snappy like three piece suits, corporate London snappy. I mean like, you know, nicely chosen clothes, well put together.
1: Yeah. Like the kind of clothes you look at when you go into a room. Totally. Yeah.
0: Anyway, Pascal, it's lovely to have you with us. (laughs) Thank you very much. And
2: uh, you can't see me blushing, but thank you. And this brings back. (laughs) very fond memories of our work together.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Pascal, can you maybe talk a little bit, just introduce yourself, your role at ICRC? And maybe we should say ICRC is the International Committee of the Red Cross. Like We we will use that all of the time. But yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your role there.
2: Yes, it's pleasure. And thank you again for having me here. So I joined the International Committee of the Red Cross more than 15 years ago. I think it's now 17 years that I've been working with the organization. And I joined the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, after an initial career in in investment banking. And it was a deliberate choice to leave that behind, uh, to discover something totally new. And I think it was the best decision of my life. Because it brought me to so many places, made me see so many situations, made me meet my wife, of course. Mm. Mm. But I think it, it was a transformational journey and it continues to be a transformational journey. I've been spending 15 years with the ICC in the field, in different places. Uh, I started in, uh, in Nepal. I spent time in Colombia, in Pakistan, in Rwanda, in Iraq, and so many other places. Now I'm back in Geneva as the chief of staff for our global operations. And in that role, I had the pleasure working with uh, Tim and Hughes on a transformational organizational development project. The role of the chief of staff obviously comes in very different shapes. And now here at the ICRC, it comprises responsibilities in budgeting and planning. It comprises responsibilities in accompanying the strategy development and the implementation of that very strategy, but also, and that's how we met, I would say, with uh, tasks related to organizational development of the ICRC. So it is also a function that somewhere sits between the different departments at the HQ, and it's also a function that really tries to connect the HQ with our people in the field. I think that would describe the role of chief of staff.
0: I remember when we were there that, you know, it's 15,000 people globally who were directly related into that role.
2: Yes, approximately 15,000 people that are related to the Department of Operations. Yeah. Uh, some of which sit at the HQ, but the vast majority is it's in very, very different places. And it's a very diverse uh, community of, of uh, people from all the continents. and. Uh, so that is what makes it a beautiful role, really.
3: Mm.
1: Well, that's actually, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, you kind of slid past, you know, you're, you're between HQ and all of the different regions and having done field work for so long, I guess I experienced what an amazing position that was. I, like your view of things felt like so interesting and comprehensive, right? Because you had the HQ view and you'd been in the field, but I was also really aware of how challenging that must be to manage All of the different needs, all of the different perspectives, knowing really, I felt like in your role, you are a person who kind of can really understand from the different, like the different, even when they're conflicting needs. And so, I'm really curious how you begin to think about navigating what are real, valid, but conflicting needs and perspectives in the organization. You're like right at that point where where it all intersects.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. That's a big challenge, and uh, I think if I hadn't. Been in the field. And, and when I talk of the field, I really mean all these offices that are far away from a capital, offices that are low tech, offices where you have a certain level of hardship. If you haven't lived it, I think you cannot really understand it. You need to have that first hand experience of who are the people you're working with and who are the people you're working for. In our case, this is usually the people we're working for. These are the people affected by conflict, by wars, and you need to understand what what that is. You need to have been there, and then I think you need to know the other side. You need to know what it means to be at HQ, because HQ is sort of having, or is an enabling function, first and foremost. And... If you haven't been in Bose, you have a blind spot because you don't know what are the, the needs of the people, what do our employees out there really need. However, they also don't know what the HQ uh, needs because we need to right. connect with the world around us. We, need to, we mm-hmm. need to work with technology. We need to work with data because this is an enabling. We need to talk to our donors and we need to talk to the general public so it's finding that balance between the needs on both ends and that makes it uh, truly special
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) special (laughs) well i just wondered what and so i'm tim i promise i'm gonna let you ask
0: a question no mate i love it keep going
1: i'm so curious about the transition from investment banking to being in the field and even if there's anything you learned in investment banking that you that's like oh that still fits, even here, even with what I'm doing.
2: Ah, hmm. uh, yeah. No, I think it was it was a life changing decision, and it was, as so many decisions, a, a, a snap decision. I was reflecting a little bit about it, but I realized that I was not really reading the Financial Times and and all the other financial magazines with a lot of interest. Mm. Or if I read it, I went to the political pages. (laughs) Mm. And I was much more interested in what's happening in the world. And at one point I said, when I'm reaching the age of retirement, I want to be able to tell my grandchildren what I did. And I want to tell a good story. And I want to have uh, something... Uh, where i was contributing to to something to an improvement to a betterment and so i took that decision and yes i think at first it was a humbling experience because i came from a position where i had a lot of responsibility in the investment bank to having to learn the trade Hmm. really as a delegate in the field right it was humbling it opened so many doors the experience was amazing And yet I could take, there is some knowledge transfer that you can make all the times. So some of the things that I learned in investment banking, I could apply. And I keep on applying it. Mm -hmm. I keep on applying it when I'm thinking about financing models for the Red Cross. Is there anything innovative we could do? I think my investment knowledge is outdated, investment banking knowledge, but still there is a foundation there and that allows me to connect with that world. Mm -hmm. And it's always interesting if you can do a knowledge transfer I find that really fascinating.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Pascal, I feel like that chief of staff roles fascinating. I'm going to kind of like tag up on what Tuesday was raising earlier in that, you know, you as a chief of staff, you're responsible to a directorate, which, are, you know, just to translate wise is like a senior leadership team above them is an assembly, which is, you know, for those who are out there, the equivalent of a board in many ways, you know, right. Just in terms of a structure, though, the functions are slightly different, you know, and then you've got a team that's working for you and you've got a broader stakeholder group of 15,000 people who. You are also serving an even bigger stakeholder group in situations of conflict or post-natural disaster, or, right? And so you're in this position of hierarchical power and authority, yet under very extreme pressure from multiple different directions, bottom up from stakeholders, top down from decision-makers donors, assembly members, directorate members, you know, and one of the things I'm working on at the moment, just in my own work and in my own life is trying to like, I feel like a lot of the way people approach senior leaders is to try and navigate around them. How do I manipulate this person? So they become on side for me, or it is about trying to get their power and make it their own. You know, but I feel like many of the current approaches to how we work with our senior leaders, either top down or bottom up, actually lack empathy for the circumstances they're in. Yeah, yeah. And a big part of my work at the moment is like, I'm just trying to think about like, how do we build empathy for the context and the situations that senior leaders find themselves in so that we can actually engage with them in a more humane way? I think we're very humane in how we think about how we engage out and broadly and down and across our hierarchies and our stakeholder groups. But very rarely are we kind and generous in the way we engage up or the way we apply pressure upon our senior leaders. And I just want, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that, you know? I mean, maybe not a specific question, but just hear your thoughts on this idea of like, hey, now, how do we generate the empathy for senior leaders? What is there a window into that role you can give us that would maybe enable us to see something we wouldn't normally see?
2: Thank you, Tim. I, it's very interesting listening to to your reflections and, and I recognize some of it. And I, I'm thinking, how, how do we get around this? And what can mm. I do in, in such a senior leadership position to get sufficiently close and uh, get to understand or, or get people to understand what I'm actually doing. Mm. I think part of it is trying to spend as much time as you can listening uh, to other people, talking to other people, trying to engage with other people genuinely, not just having a, a sort of a town hall and you talk to them, but really trying to reach out. And obviously having had an experience of working in the same organization in these remote places gives me sort of an advantage, it's a sort of a credibility that I know what they are through. But, you know, once you move to that senior position, that fades away a little bit. So I think you really need to make sure that you stay in contact. One thing that comes to mind to me is is maybe the word vulnerability. Mm. I think as a leader, you need to also show that your vulnerabilities, obviously not all of it, but to make them see, you're also a human being, you're also struggling, you're also having uh, challenges uh, and, and, and hard choices to make and talking about it. Mm-hmm. The tricky thing there is I think you need to uh, very much contain and manage how much of that you want to share. So it's a bit of a deliberate choice, right?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: But then I think if you, if you create space to listen, that is sometimes all it takes, making yourselves available so that people feel like talking to you they really want to come
0: to you because
2: they know he's there
0: mm. just a slight follow up question so i love what you're saying because you're talking i mean this is typical of you right your first response was like how do i take responsibility for this mm-hmm. right which is you know the sign of a good leader and i also would like to know like how do you like to be approached mm. What are the ways that you are approached that actually create the best conditions for forward movement? And I don't mind which direction you talk from, whether you talk from you know, the, the, the assembly and the director approaching you, or whether you talk about your 15,000 stakeholders or the people you are serving in the field. But like, what is, how do you like to be approached? What are the ways that you get approached as a senior leader that actually open you up, that actually create in you a possibility? But it's not just about your effort. There's actually some effort that needs to come from other places. I don't know. What's worked for you, I guess? What works for you when people approach you?
2: I like when people approach me in an honest way. Mm. When I know why they approach me, when I can feel... And and I think there is is some work to be done before. If you haven't done that work, it is hard for people uh, to approach you. So you need to make sure that people know who you are. Because through that, mm-hmm. you can create trust. And when there is trust, it is so much easier for people to approach you. That is in particular the case when f- for the people sort of hierarchically working under or below you. Once you have that trust, it's so much easier. And when you have spelled it out, when you have said you can come, and when you come, please share what it is, what is on your mind, uh, what is disturbing you, what you need advice for. That is easier. Now, if it is obviously the people, your peers might be different. And if you talk of an assembly or, or yeah, yeah, it's also different. Um, But then again, I think uh, knowing each other is the basis.
0: Right. So, I mean, you're talking about a foundation of relationship building. Yes. I think this is something you need to invest in. No matter what direction you come from, whether you're a, because, you know, we have board members. And we have very senior leaders listening to this pod just as much as we have people who are working on the front lines of change and engaging with senior leaders up the hierarchy. It means both of those groups listen to the pod. And so I think what you're saying is whichever direction you're coming from as you approach a senior leader, like the quality of relationship that you have with them is going to impact how you move things forward, like the effort into the relationship, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you can never let it, uh, let it go. It's, for me, it's an investment that you do on a daily basis. And I think it needs to be extremely close to whom you really are. You cannot play a different role. You you have the leader that you are, or the manager, the leader that you are must be the person that you are. Uh, You can, I think, you must build some some defense lines, and you need to have some walls because you do not want to be that leader twenty four hours a day. You also want to be have a little bit of a protection from it but it needs to be sitting very close together
0: love it thanks pascal mm.
1: i'm also curious pascal if you can talk with us about how to navigate urgency at all times right so i'm thinking about so many clients we work with you know their, their missions are important Important, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like it's not, you know, we're not we're not working. And sometimes we laugh. Like we're not working with people who make widgets all day, right? It's people's lives, and they really matter. And so it doesn't get more urgent than conflict, war, and post conflict. It doesn't, you know, like the the work you are doing. It cannot be more urgent. And so I'm curious if there's anything you've learned about being smart or wise or even vulnerable when you're working in such urgency. Because I found with our clients often you know, it's people's lives are at stake. And so it's like, almost like we have to work quicker, we have to work harder. And it's can be really hard to kind of pause any patterns or make any changes because people are so invested with good reason in the urgency. And I just would love to hear you talk about that at all. And what you've learned having worked in urgency for 17 years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Seriously.
0: And and not not worked in urgency, and had to like prioritize organizational efforts sometimes over the urgency. I imagine.
2: No, no. I mean, first of all, it's about uh, applying uh, filters. But I think before we apply filters, I I want to start with an example. Um, When I was working in Colombia, we very often got very urgent requests, last minute requests to organize hostage liberation operations, where we would receive a phone call from an armed group that would tell us we have a hostage. We would like to, to, to organize the liberation of that, that hostage. We would like to hand it over uh, to the International Committee of the Red Cross. And it must happen now. And one thing I, I learned is tell them to call back in five minutes. I mean, when it is possible. And during that five minutes, you take a cup of tea or, or you have a coffee or whatever it is, because you need to calm down. You need to think. These five minutes thinking, this gives you the quality to quickly go over it and then take it up. I'm not saying it's always possible, but whenever it is possible.
1: That is amazing. I just want to, like, I just, wow. I mean, I feel like often we don't feel like we can take five minutes when it's just, you know are we going to work tomorrow? You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, that feels like such a, wow. I'm going to tell this story again, Pascal. I feel like that's going to be something that's really, really useful to people because you can take five minutes, even in a hostage liberation situation, Mm. we can take five minutes now.
2: Absolutely. And, and, Obviously, that people don't get me wrong. There are situations where it is not possible where you have that one shot and you need to immediately respond. but you, you you start to feel when can you take five minutes and whenever you can, you take them because the outcome is so much better. You're calming down, your brain starts to work, you can organize your team around you, you can have the right people uh, sitting next to you, and it works brilliantly, whereas otherwise, I think you go off in any direction and you are responding on an impulse and it doesn't work so that's that's for that situation and then well many things seem to be urgent but they are not urgent so you need to go through a sort of a prioritization and then you can I think you can always ask you a couple of questions what is the impact what's the worst that can happen if I'm not doing this now Mm. and what is the impact if I'm doing this and not the other and clearly in the line of work we do I can say if there is a person affected by armed conflict and I can help that person, I have an impact. So that's, that's what I prioritize, of course, over anything else. But there might be something that people describe as being urgent to help these uh, these affected people. And I, might, I might think it's more urgent to prepare the ground first to get our approach right and if then we act, um, we probably have a better impact.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm so pascal we would in our work together obviously we were looking at the kind of operational model of icrcs globally spanning globally and so on on one level this was about what's happening on the ground like you know how do we improve the structure and the setup of the organization to facilitate the work on the ground and of course on the other level this is an organizational priority. This is an organization that over 150 years just grew and grew and grew in an additive of additive way, generally, with them, when there was a problem, we added something to the organization, and then it becomes increasing becomes increasingly cumbersome, right because you're just it's an additive problem solving mechanism, and then you get to a point where it's so cumbersome that you're not able to respond as effectively as agilely, if that's a word to the circumstances you're facing, right? So it's got that kind of like bottom up pressure, it's got that top down pressure in it, you know, and in the midst of that you're literally having to make decisions that feel organizational developing, that feel kind of strategy, that feels strategic yet we've got people in the room who are dealing with the kind of circumstance you described in Colombia every day and so that balance between like holding the strategic priority yet still trying to listen to and engage the voice of grassroots, that feels like a real big tension to me and a tension that we were constantly working with and trying to marry. Um, There was one particular session we did where Tuesday was facilitating and it was like these concentric circles. We did it in Geneva and we had folks in the field and in HQ kind of like turning to each other and beginning to share their experiences. And I felt like in that moment, it's like it's one of my highlight memories. You know, that this like division between the HQ and the regions in that, not indefinitely, but in that moment, there was an experience of that beginning to dissolve. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And of course, that sets a precedent. It it shows us the experience of it shows us it can be done, not that it's going to get done immediately, not that as of tomorrow, things are fundamentally different, but a precedent has been set. An example has been felt. So I just wonder like that kind of like bridging of the, the stretch of the priorities there, you know, feels important to kind of systems change work, like how we navigate that. And then just to start taking us into the reference, you know, into those reference points of the work we did, you know, that, that stretch. And then what are some of the memories you have as you look back over the work we did that kind of really stick out for you?
2: This is really a good point. Um, because we are working on that spectrum from urgency to, to really being strategic. And this can be on one, for instance, urgent response to a, to a crisis. But we can also work on a diplomatic engagement. And that takes years. Ah. And that is the more strategic. So I think we need to have very much clarity of what we're doing. We, we're, we're usually quite doing at delivering something to somebody. We are excellent in emergency mode because that is where we are at home. We are sometimes not so good at the strategic or we haven't been so good at the strategic because we tend to always run in emergency mode, in crisis mode. Mm. We always fall back on our, our way of doing business in crisis. So it's, it's been important to realize there is different modes to apply. We need to define where are we? Is this a crisis or is this strategic? If it is strategic, we need to apply a different mode of doing business. Right. Mm. And I think this is something that uh, that we discovered also in the work with you. And I think we, we then also discovered that we probably built a lot of processes when we were trying to, you know, not to, to, to be in emergency Outside that emergency framework, we were extremely creative and we had 150 years of time to build procedures and processes and guidelines and so on. Mm-hmm. And in the end, we did with you, we did some prototypes of how we could make this easier. And we found out that for certain procedures or processes, nobody knew why they were there. And the people that we thought have invented them, <laughs> <That's> said, <right. laughs> we never invented them. So we came up with a word it was self-inflicted pain and i think it was to it is to an extent very often Mm. self-inflicted pain so it really brings me back now memories of what we did together and that's very fond memories
0: Mm. nice
1: i love it i'm wondering pascal if there were any memories or turning points in the project because i also the concentric circles one is a big one for me around people coming together i also happen to remember kind of sending you off on a mission to work with some senior voices in the room where like we're not getting them engaged and like how can we get them engaged and pascal doing a little beeline over to this group of people to get them engaged right because you had the credibility with them and so i'm wondering if you can think of any turning points or memories in the project that like this is like something shifted there something happened
2: yes i think i have i have many of course uh Maybe an, all, an an overall reflection that I have, and I think back to that work. The word that comes to my mind is trust, because with you we were embarking on a journey that was not familiar for any of us, and and least for the leadership group, because we didn't know how you work, and we also didn't exactly know what the, what the destination would look like. And uh, in this journey, I had to let go of some of my very own biases, but with every step. Along the journey, the trust grew. I saw that that actually does make sense. And I saw a model emerging and I I started to see that makes sense. And so trust in any process is is something very important. So this is is my overall experience. If you ask me memories that stand out, and it, it very much talks to what I just said, I remember sort of the first workshop we had together and probably it was the second evening or something. Everybody was feeling extremely uncomfortable and, and we were all in the mood of like, what the heck are we doing here? Mm. What, what is that? And, and, and that is leading nowhere and we were so discontent. And you came up with a, with a model. You tried to visualize our experience and we were all sitting on the floor of that meeting room and you taped something on the floor. And it was sort of the model of divergence, the groaning zone and convergence. So you told us, look, you are here in the divergence, and that is a necessary part of your process. You need to have that moment of divergence. You must feel uncomfortable because it's only then when you start really deeply reflecting about it, you get into this groaning zone. You're suffering, but you're trying to engage with it. And all of a sudden, it does start to make sense, and the group sort of starts to come together, and we get in this convergence and that is one that I use all the time when people say, ah, but I, I'm not comfortable with what's happening. I say, we are probably in the divergence phase and, and let's just wait, it will be okay. So that's, that's one that I really use and that is a great memory.
1: That's great. I love that.
0: Yeah. There's a huge piece, I think, just in terms of like leadership or just, just in general as a human being at the moment, like building some tolerance for uncomfort you know building some tolerance you know because I mean it doesn't it doesn't take much to look around at the moment to realize that change is on whether we like it or not you know whether it's whether it's within our workplaces whether it's within our communities you know what I mean whether it's in the the geopolitical landscape you know whether it's in the environment like it changes on right now in a really significant way and the nature of that is that it is uncomfortable. And so if we can't get acclimatized to uncomfort, if we can't find a way to sit in it without freaking out, I think it just becomes incredibly stressful.
2: It is. And and, and I think now it's probably a key moment in all of that because we're coming slowly out of, of a pandemic that forced us to do things differently. We have learned, or we should have learned a lot during the period. We We were doing things differently. There is opportunities. And and now is a key moment because we all would like to go back to our old comfort zone. But I think we should pause and say, okay, what can we learn from this? What can we carry on doing? Where are we never going to go back?
3: Yeah,
2: I think we need to hold it a bit. So maybe keep sitting a bit in this groaning zone and have a conscious debate or discussion about it. Where do we want to go? What is the future? Because the future is not where we started.
0: No, I love that. Even within our families, like I've hardly traveled the last two and a half years, Pascal, and I was traveling for business, you know, 12 times a year, you know, up to a week each time. And, and, uh, and I've just spent the last two and a half years at home and I've loved it. I've loved it. I've got to spend so much time with my kids. I've got to spend so much time with my wife. I've got to spend so much time in my community, you know, and, uh, and there's no way I want to go back to the way it was before. But. I've still got to put beans on the table. You know what I mean? And and so I'm going to have to travel some. And so it is, it's like this, it's trying to find the new balance and then knowing even that might change. Like, it, like the, this constant demand to kind of like pivot in response to the circumstances because they're changing around us all the time, you know? And then how not to be exhausted by that, right? How not to be exhausted by that? Like what, what are the kind of, practices that we can build in ourselves and in our families and into our relationships that actually keep us regenerated in the midst of all of that. Because it's easy to think, right, I'm sorted. Choose and I were just like the other day talking about, all right, we're just going to go for everything again, you know? And then it's like, well, we might just end up exhausted and burned out. We remember what that feels like. All right. How do we do this differently?
2: What comes to my mind is closely related to what you said. For two years, we were very much restricting our traveling And and no big meetings took place. Not everybody was flying into Geneva and back to the field. And more or less at the same time, we made a commitment to the climate and environment. So we we have a climate and environment charter. We said we wanted to reduce our carbon uh, footprint by 50% by 2030. There we go. Great. So through not flying around the whole world, we were not taking thousands of flights. So we are on good track. Now we're coming out of the pandemic, people can start to travel again. So obviously the first reflex is to let's have all these meetings. Right. And that's for me the moment now where we can say, hey, there is an opportunity because we are on good track for our uh, climate and environment targets and commitments. So can we build on that? Can we actually keep on meeting differently? And yes, it is very important in any organization. We are human beings. We need to meet from time to time. But do we have to meet so frequently, so often? Or can we make those experiences of virtual meetings, can we still make improve them? And, and what can we do not to go back, but rather to make it better? Mm. Right. So there is opportunities. And I think, it, again, it, it, it requires the five minutes, or maybe it's five months of reflection. Say, what are we doing with that before we just jump to what we know? I love it.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's like I'm thinking about, you know, the two loops model that we always share on how the dominant system really does try to reassert itself. Yes. Right? Like un- unless we pause, we will we'll just go back. But the benefit of this pause has been we've seen we can do it. We've had to do it, right? We've had to not be together all of the time and still get good work done. Exactly. And Pascal, I'm curious about any personal practices you have, like to kind of in the midst of all and, and because for me, I feel like when the pandemic came on, right, personal practice became incredibly important. I mean, it's always important, but like, oh, my gosh, so much change. What are we doing? Everyone had to adjust. But now that we're coming out of it, there, I think there also is another need to kind of really pick up like these personal things that keep us resourced, keep us going, keep us from burning out as this dominant system tries to reassert itself. And so we always like to ask people, what are the things you do to kind of keep yourself grounded in the midst of the urgency and upheaval?
2: I have really felt the amount of stress and I I suffered from uh, work-related stress. And I had to take a little bit of a time to reflect about it. How do I cope with that? and, and, And how do I make sure that I'm not suffering too much from that because what I actually want is I want to have energy from what I do and I don't want to be drained by what I do so I started to to reflect and and I came up with a system of of pillars when I look at my life
0: okay of course you did (laughs) (laughs) I love it
2: no but I think work is such an important pillar but for many work becomes the only pillar and it's right. from work that you get all your satisfaction and happiness and, and and all the negative things. But it's just one pillar. You have at least two or more other pillars. I have a pillar that is my beloved ones. That's my family, and so I need to make sure that I give attention to that and that uh, that pillar is as big as my work pillar. And there is a third pillar. That's myself. Great. Right. Part of it you probably find in the first two pillars, but you also need to have time for yourself. And I think being Aware about that helps you to find a proper balance. And one big danger of what we all went through is that you're always available because we're all in virtual meetings and uh, at home. So your work is also at home. So what I started to do is I developed, now I come from, uh, from pillars to circles, but I thought of I'm actively stepping every morning out of my private life mm-hmm. because I'm still in my private life circle. And my my work is not there. I check out of that and I check in into my work. Mm. And it's at 8, it's at 7, it's at 9, whenever I decide. Mm -hmm. But I consciously check in. Mm. And at a certain moment in the evening or also at lunch or whatever it is, check out. See, I'm leaving that work bubble.
3: Mm.
2: And I admit sometimes I need to do something and maybe I... But then I check in again at 9 in the evening for two hours of reading. Mm. And I define how much time I want to dedicate to that. And that helped me enormously to find that that really crucial balance.
0: I love it. I love it. Lots of the people who listen to this pod, Pascal, are either already engaged in kind of significant change efforts. They're at the front end of change efforts, you know, or they're just aspiring to get significant change going. We worked with you over, I think, a two-year period, two and a half years in total with ICRC. And we worked really closely for periods of that with you directly. And like you say, like we brought an approach that was unusual within the circumstance you were in, you know, it was highly, particip- it was highly participatory, it was working with a, stri- you know, a clear strategic container, but an unpredictable outcome, which is often the nature of systems change, because the, the whole thing is, you don't you know, it's so complex, you don't actually know where you're going, you have to discover it as part of the journey. Exactly, yeah. And I also feel like you were pretty cynical in the beginning, and I think that's fair, you know, and I think that, and I think people should be, I think they should be discerning at the start of something, you know, so what's your advice? as people are considering stepping into some of these like more audacious change efforts, these longer term initiatives that are trying to shift institutions that are 150 years old, whether that be your town council in a rural village, (laughs) right? Or whether that be an institution of the global reach of the International Red Cross, the the immobility of some of these old systems, I think can feel very familiar almost at whatever scale you're at. And so what, what would your advice be as people think about entering these kind of larger, longer-term change efforts?
2: Yeah, Tim, uh, because you you mentioned that I was kind of cynical at the the beginning. And and (laughs) I think you're right, you're right, because I had my own personal biases, and uh, I was convinced of how you can approach this problem. I was convinced that uh, we just need to have a a consultant that has done this number of times, and we can do that top-down, and it will be done. So that was my bias. And uh, I think, so therefore what I'm saying is you need to be first conscious about yourself. You have to have a big, good self-awareness as a leader. What is my bias? Where do I lean to? Mm. And then you need to ask yourself: Am I open to discover something else? Mm. Because you need to be open. Uh, If if you're not open, it it wouldn't work. But uh, I was open, and I think what was good is that I had people next to me that were extremely open. So I I was sort of: if they are open, I can only be open. Also, be open. I, I can try this. And then, what I, when I reflect about it, if you want to really do a big systemic change, applying a different method, I think what you need is leadership. Leadership leadership and trust
0: agreed agreed
2: by saying leadership i don't mean this is to be implemented top down not at all no i think you need them to have a leadership that displays that they fully stand behind the idea of systemic change they need to be in it Mm -hmm. and they will have to reassure every everybody that the chosen model that uh, has all these uncertainties inbuilt is fine and uh, that it will be getting done. Systemic change comes from within the organization. So it also means that the top leadership needs to empower the person that are part of that change process. Yeah, need to give them a voice, need to, need, need to dedicate some of their time to listen to these people and to expect the unexpected. <laughs> so if these people come up with something, They didn't think of it's precisely the reason why they wanted to work with the system. So there needs to be this openness. And that can only happen when there is leadership, when when the leadership says, we are ready to do that. If the leadership is not ready to do that, we probably need to work first with the leadership to get them there or choose another approach.
0: There's a great quote from um, a methodology called Open Space Technology. And one of their lines is, be prepared to be surprised you know yes <laughs> right do you know what i mean like be like get be prepared to be surprised i'm like oh yeah
2: okay no. and, and the leadership can of course in the end the leadership can also not just choose what they like no from that process because it's a system a system lives it's already in the system so what they discover they cannot they cannot just say i like this and i don't like that
3: right mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: now again i'm, I'm not saying a, a manager and a leader of course gives a certain direction they can listen and they can they can say how far they want to go with it. But they certainly need to consider all of it and to be ready to consider all of it. Love it. Because in, in the end, they also need to be, of course, accountable for the process that they supported.
0: Right. Right. It's tough, isn't it? It's like let go of control, but remain accountable. It is extremely tough. Yes, it's extremely tough. Yeah.
1: And I tend to think of when we get started and working in these ways that be prepared to be surprised, like all of these things are kind of Unleashed in the system, right? So, all of those core team members we worked with, Pascal, then took up some leadership and went out into their areas. And so, you have, you know, you don't have control of what happens once you kind of start a process like that. And so, you're, you know, exactly the leaders being prepared to like make good leadership decisions, but also to let go of some of that control because it's almost like the horse is out of the barn. Once you give people a voice and have them kind of impacting, They want to do that. And I'm curious before we, I know we, I know we need to be wrapping up, but I'm curious if you're seeing any impacts from our work together still. I hear anecdotal things as I talk with different folks from ICRC, but I'm just curious if you're seeing any impacts from what we did together.
2: Yeah. So uh, there is really many, I think. Let me try to collect a little bit uh, my thoughts. So we deliberately start to work with a very diverse group. We tried to include more people, so the diversity and inclusion but um What I really learned then, and I think what many of us learned, is that equity also belongs there. And you remember Mm. me also in the beginning, I was not so much of an equity fan (laughs) because probably I misunderstood it. I think now I understand it. It's not good enough to include a couple of people and to make the group a little bit more diverse, but you have to have this equity. And I think that is something that we learned. So it was an accelerator Mm. for all our efforts, we are ambitions, as an organization in that field, but it was an accelerator because we, gave, we had an example to show how diversity, inclusion, and equity produces something that is probably better than anything we had before, mm. how these voices matter. That was a learning experience, and this is something we keep on applying. The other thing we learned with you is uh, the prototyping methodology. Mm. Mm. We did a lot of tests. We had ideas coming out of this group and we tried to bring it to a field where we can apply it in a small setting where we can learn, where we can fail if we, if we need to, and then where we can adjust and pivot and test again. And this methodology stayed with us, and we still apply it a lot. And so many people are talking about prototyping nowadays. So.
1: Great. Oh, I love hearing that. That's fantastic.
0: That's fantastic. I've got a final question, and maybe it's for all of us, but it's kind of like, based on your experience, based on the choices you're making right now, Pascal, as you look around both within the IC but ICRC, but also within your own world, like what is it that gives you a sense of possibility for the future? Where, where is it that you look and you actually feel hope or aspiration for where we may be heading as people who are trying to get change done? I mean, all three of us all three of us are ambitious people, all three of us are audacious in what we want to get down, and all three of us lead from a place of you know, genuine, heartfelt desire to have a positive impact in the world. And so where is it that you're finding hope and, and possibility and opportunity in your work, in your life?
2: Yeah, and I think about uh, transformations and change. Not so much now aspiring that we find a new operating model, because that will just be the next operating model. Um, and that will be a great success, of course. Uh, but what I'm aspiring to more, and what I hope we will achieve, and I'm optimistic that we will, is that we will bring about a lasting transformation in terms of culture and beliefs. Mm. So if we have, if we can do that, if we have that built-in ability to work with a diverse group of people, and we have a built-in ability to go into the system and Include the people that are there in the system. I think then we get very closely to a moment where we're ready for change at any time.
3: Mm. Right.
2: Because change is happening around us all the time. And so our operating model will evolve also over the hundred and fifty years that we have in front of us, right? Right. So my hope is really that we learned through that experience and that we keep on learning that culture and beliefs is is what we really need to change.
0: Oh, I
1: love it. Mm-hmm. I love that. Tim, it makes me want to ask you what gives you hope.
0: For me, it's like where I find my most kind of like hope and joy. It's like, it's, it's really simple things. You know, it's like, uh, it's like in in my playing football with my son, playing soccer with my son. It sounds so simple compared to what you were talking about, like the scope of what you were talking about, but, but like going for a walk with my dog and like feeling the weather change and the spring coming. And then I come to work with a different Attitude to everything I'm facing. Do you know what I mean? It's like I coach soccer. I coach five and six year old soccer, four, five and six year old soccer every Sunday, and like it is the most hilarious element of my week. Every single week, like I walk out of that room (laughs) having like gut laughed so many times. You know that my perspective on the world has shifted, and and so it's it's in very. I, I find that my a lot of my hope and possibility is. Um, in very very simple things and then born out of that then that kind of hope and possibility begins to start being applied to the kind of bigger scale stuff that i'm in and the 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 kind of longer term work that is part of my calling is part of what i find myself doing in the in the world you know but i thought i I often turn to very simple things for the hope and possibility
2: so inspiring and i think you're right with
0: that Mm. how about you choose
1: well, I think, you know, the thing I was, cause you said, you might ask all of us. I was thinking that, you know, and it actually is quite true for me at this moment. Spring is giving me like, it just, there's something about spring. I just looked at the one of the, the it was raining this morning and the sun just came out and like the crocuses are blossoming and um, you can kind of begin to smell the wet earth and not the frozen earth. Right. You just like, and it's like, you know, the inevitability of change is somehow makes me hopeful. And when it's really, cause there's some dark wow. things happening in the world. Right. So like the inevitability of like regeneration or hope. So that's for sure a big part, but Pascal, as you were talking, I just like, I think what gives me hope more than anything is I have a sense that so many of us are like moving more and more into our wholeness right? Into like, you know, you talked about pillars, right? And like, I just have a sense that, that this pause of the pandemic, as hard as it has been, has been something that people are looking for. Like, what is it that I want? What is right for me? what is, and from that, that place, I think action can be very different, mm. right? I think it's, there's something about people moving into their wholeness and their action from there That gives me just huge amounts of hope. And also just, I mean, you're just bringing me right back to, it's hard to describe, Pascal, and I wonder if you even take it for granted, like the amazing people at the ICRC, like the caliber of work and people Mm. everywhere you look.
0: Mm. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing.
1: You know, it's just amazing. And so I'm like, there are these folks doing work out in the world. Like, that's what I know. If I think about ICRC, if I think about Minnesota Department of Health, I think about New York Child Welfare, like, these are high caliber people doing work in the world. And so, like, it's just like, so that makes me just incredibly hopeful. Our systems are people, and there are lots of us good people or something. Yeah.
0: I love it. Well, as we move to close, Pascal, you know that we kind of like uh, often ask our guests two questions and so the first one is is there a quote you're carrying around in your back pocket or a poem or a song is there something that you're just like referring to at the moment that is helpful to you and would you be willing to share it if so
2: yes i am and i i put it on my mobile phone uh, screen
0: nice
2: probably a month ago and it it was if it doesn't feel good don't do it (sighs) (laughs) Ah, <laughs> and I, I really use it often, mm. and it's not about if it doesn't sound good, it if it doesn't feel good, and it takes a moment to feel it and then decide. Yeah, mm.
1: I love it, love it.
0: Jeez, I think I feel like you're about to quote Martha Beck. I'm, I, just I mean, like, I have
1: you, to. I, I can't like help you are. it. Go on. <laughs> I can't. I can't help it. It's like you open the door and i have to walk through it pascal <laughs> i'm looking cuz i usually have the
0: tuesday is reading this book pascal and like like almost every single conversation we have she quotes this book to me you know it's <laughs> honestly it's like it's like it's, it- I mean, choose You 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 read a lot of books, but it's very rare that you read one that you reference so much, so regularly <laughs> to the point now. I prompt her to do it. I'm like, wait a minute, she hasn't quoted Martha Beck this whole conversation. I'm slightly weirded out. Uh, Tuesday, maybe you should quote Martha Beck because I'm right. beginning to feel anxious. Like, I uh, you know, There's
1: something missing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, Pascal. Okay, I just have to tell you, I just I know you would like it, but you you know, like whatever. But it's called the Way of Integrity. And it's by a woman named Martha Beck. And it is so amazing because it is all about like that you can trust yourself, right? You can trust your own knowing and you can move from that place. So when you say, if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. yeah, Yeah. It's not like a Martha Beck would say, that's not hedonistic. It's actually where you get your truth right? It's like where you get smart action. And so if you have a chance, you know, Martha Beck, The Way of Integrity is totally changing my life. And I have been listening to all of her podcasts and reading the book. And it's just, I'm telling everyone I know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> wicked Pascal thank you so much for taking an hour out of y- your life and coming into us from I'm realising spring has already sprung in Switzerland I was just over in the UK seeing my mum and dad and you know the, the crocuses and the snowdrops were gone and the daffodils were out you know and so mm-hmm. like spring's already sprung with you so you must be enjoying that but just like thank you so much for taking the time just to kind of answer questions and be in conversation and discovery with us so rich to hear you mm-hmm. and so welcome Wonderful to reconnect to you, mate.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you very much, Tim and, and Tuesday. Also, for me, it's always great to, to reconnect with you. It's just a great experience talking to you. It's always sort of an inspiration. Mm. And uh, talking of the unexpected and hearing you while we are talking, it's snowing outside in Geneva. So oh. just oh, wow. uh, talking of the unexpected.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. Be, be prepared to be surprised, right? That's exactly. Great. wicked thank you friends
1: thank you so much